Amen. It's wonderful, isn't it, to be able to have that assurance and bear that kind of personal testimony. And that truly is what the Lord would have for every one of His true children. It brings Him glory when we can say and sing those things with great assurance. It is not glorifying to Him when we simply cannot come to the place where with confidence in the promise of God that we can actually say those things. There are numbers of Christian people who were reared in various truly Christian traditions, but in which they basically were taught that it is a pious thing, it is a right thing to remain in a kind of a suspense about your security. And those folks have the impression that to be definite about it, to say with definiteness what Asher just sung for us is presumption. But you can't find that in your New Testament. You find the Apostle Paul expressing in the most confident terms his position in Christ, and he teaches it in his letters that all of us as the Lord's people may know and that we may be able to speak these things. The word that the Scripture uses is is boldness. Boldness. Thank you, Asher, so much, and a real appreciation tonight, I know from all of us, to the orchestra and the choir. Hear those numbers and the tone of that kind of music just uh, catches you up with a sense of uh, spiritual mindedness and uh, great, great awareness of God and the things of God. So grateful. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles tonight so that we can read together in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew and the 13th chapter. Generally, on these Lord's Table evenings, the messages are centered on the cross, on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, But there is a truth taught by our Lord that has been occupying my thoughts and my mind now for several weeks. And this last week, as I earnestly prayed about two possible messages tonight, this is the one that I found my spirit preoccupied with. Matthew 13, we'll begin our reading with the 24th verse. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? 
How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now please, verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray now for the work of your Spirit in our hearts. We pray that everyone here who is good seed and truly a child of the kingdom would be greatly reassured tonight. We ask for everyone who is false that they would come to know themselves for what they are and that by your grace they would humble themselves and come to the Lord Jesus Christ and own Him and Him alone as their Savior and their Lord. And we ask it for your glory in his name. Amen. I want to begin tonight with what I trust will be a sober question for all of us. Do you think that there is a possibility that you may be nothing but a spiritual tear? Nothing but a spiritual tear in your Christian family, in a Christian church, or a Christian school. I'm not asking whether you still sin. In the wonderful passage written for us by the Apostle John that tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and He is righteous to forgive or dismiss our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The very next verse says, but if we say that we have not sinned, 
This is written to Christian people. It's talking about their present experience in life. We need to constantly confess our sins. But if we said, I have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I'm not asking, do you still sin? I'm not asking tonight whether you are at times almost completely overcome by your flesh. The Apostle Paul testifies to his own experience as a mature Christian. The good that I want to do, I do not, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. O wretched man that I am. You will struggle with your flesh until the very instant that you are taken into the presence of the Lord. And there will be times you read the testimonies of this by some of the greatest of God's people of the past. There are times when they look upon themselves and wonder how they possibly could be a child of God because of the occasions when they seem to almost be entirely in the power of indwelling sin. And I'm not asking tonight whether you sometimes doubt. Our Lord asked his true disciples, wherefore didst thou doubt? Because they did. Being truly his disciples, they did. And the apostle speaks to us of our necessity to take the shield of faith. It's the only thing to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, which ignite in us a spirit of doubt and unbelief. I'm not asking tonight whether you sometimes doubt. I'm asking, do you think that there is a possibility that you may be nothing but a spiritual tear in your Christian family, in this or another Christian church, or in a Christian institution or school? What was a tear? A tear seems to have been a species of rye, very much like wheat in its early stages. Both are members of the grass family. Both are green and rather long in the stem. And both bear their fruit or their florets in clusters on a single spike. Why was our Lord talking about them? He was talking about them because for an extended session recorded for us in this chapter, the 13th chapter of Matthew, for an extended session, our Lord was explaining, especially to his true disciples, the nature of his earthly kingdom at this present time. The Lord Jesus, this very day, is the ultimate reigning king over everything. All authority has been given unto him. But the part of the world in which the work of the kingdom is taking place, and that is not all the world. There are parts of the world tonight that are largely unevangelized. 
There are unreached peoples, portions of the world still almost completely dark. But in the portion of the field, the Lord says the field is the world. In the portion of the world in which the work of his kingdom is taking place, it is a place of very mixed conditions. The Lord is teaching his apostles regarding this because he has performed so many indisputable miracles. Everywhere he has gone, he has preached the reality of his kingdom and done so in the simplest terms, employing the most fundamental kinds of natural illustrations that no one could misunderstand. And yet there is this terrific mixed response. And the Lord is explaining that in his earthly kingdom at this present time, there is this mixed response. And he's explaining in seven parables. The first of those is one in which he is telling of mixed responses to the word when it is sown. That's the parable of the soils. Sometimes we refer to it as the parable of the sower. There's actually the parable of the soils, four different soils, as you know. And three of those four, he said, bring forth no true heart of belief in him, no true submission to him, though two of them are very promising to the sight at the beginning. But there is one soil that is good, and when the seed is sown in that, it springs up. These are the people who then produce. But then in this second parable, he tells us that even where there are a good many men and women who are that fourth kind of soil, there is still another kind of mixing. In these Christian churches and Christian institutions and Christian families, there are mixed crops. Mixed soils initially, but then even where you have good soil and where you have great result that is genuine, then mixed crops. And now he uses not soils, but plants as his illustration. Now folks, you ought to be, you ought to be, we ought to be fully persuaded that the Lord wants both the wheat and the tares to know themselves. We're approaching in just a little bit the most sacred hour in a church's weekly or monthly calendar. And that is the hour when we remember the Lord's death for us most solemnly. And it is apparent from 1 Corinthians 11 and the direction that is given there, as well as from the Lord's dismissal of Judas before that table was ever instituted, and from his appeal to Judas, it is apparent that the Lord wants us to recognize ourselves tonight. 
And Augustine said so hopefully that those who are tares today may be wheat tomorrow. That most certainly would be the Lord's will for you if you are a tear tonight. I want to begin with what is recorded for us in the 27th verse, and that is the bewilderment of the Lord's true servants. That's us, our bewilderment, our puzzlement about this in the churches, on the staffs of our Christian camps, among the faculty and staff of our Christian colleges and universities, in the memberships, in our own families, the bewilderment about this. They ask about this. How is it that this field has tares when it was all this good seed that was sown in these services and in this institution? Explain the tares. The answer, folks, that he gives is one, and I'm saying this so that you will guard yourself right now. The answer that he gives is one that our foolish, truly foolish, truth-rejecting, fantasy-embracing society has almost no place for. And that is the actual existence of a powerful, unseen, horribly fallen, angelic creature. The reality of the devil. The Lord explains it in terms of the devil. So I want first of all to call to our attention tonight this explanation to the implanting of tares among the wheat. It is a deliberate device of the devil. Paul says that Christian people are not ignorant of his devices. And what we're having revealed to us here tonight, this is very significant, is that it is not just Satan's device to deceive men and women about their true spiritual condition. That is one of his devices. But that's not the device that our Lord is exposing here. The device that our Lord is exposing here is the devils implanting those people among the wheat. Sowing them right there in that part of the world. Not those parts of the world largely unevangelized, but sowing them in those parts of the world, to be specific, affected by the Reformation, the English Evangelical Awakening. In this country, which pilgrims founded, in those parts of the world, it is his device to sow among those parcels of waving stalks of wheat, the Christian churches, the Christian families, the schools, to sow among them these tares, these lookalikes, 
And dear people, just almost a side application here for those who are genuine. When you come into a Christian church like this, if you move away from here and you must, by God's grace, find another such assembly with which to join yourself, or when you attend a Christian school or university like Bob Jones University, or when you work at the Wilds or Southland this summer, it is certain that you are entering into an environment oversown with tares. That is the point of this parable, that this is not a rare thing that occurs occasionally. Jesus says this is the nature of his kingdom right now. He is the king. He reigns over all. But the parcels of the world in which there is standing, waving grain are oversown with tares, and it is the work of the devil. And if we ask ourselves why, the Lord explains that with one word in verse 39. Would you look at it? It is the word enemy. The underlying explanation for this is something that doesn't have to do with us in the first place. It doesn't have to do with us at all. It has to do with the Lord of the kingdom. It has to do with the Son of Man. The devil is his ageous, old, and implacable enemy. He attempted, as you know, to destroy him at his very birth. When he began his public ministry, he attempted to weasel him into sinning. He was ultimately behind Judas' betrayal and behind the crucifixion of our Lord. This was foretold right after the fall. Enmity, God said to the serpent, between thy seed and the woman's. It shall bruise his heel. The seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the Son of God. And if you're here tonight, whether you know it or not, that you are a counterfeit, if you are a tear tonight, the ultimate explanation for your being here among us or in the student body or on the faculty and staff at Bob Jones University, the ultimate explanation for that is you have been sown here. You are growing up right here among the genuine, and it is a device of the devil. If we ask the question as to how it is that the devil implants tares among the wheat, there would be multiple answers to that. But one of the things that we must recognize and be very careful that we recognize on the front end is that the devil has no possibility of creating tares. Everyone by nature at his birth has this nature that our Lord says goes back to the wicked one. It explains, the Lord says, lying. 
He was a liar from the beginning. When he speaks, there's no truth in him. If there is anyone here tonight and you are aware that there is great doubtfulness about your spiritual condition, but you continue deliberately to attempt to persuade others, though you have great doubtfulness yourself, that deception is of the devil. And it is due to our nature. The scripture says that we go astray from the womb telling lies. It's one of the surest evidences of a tear. It's why in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, it tells us that all liars have their part in the lake of fire. There's nothing more fundamental to the nature of God than truth. So how then are tares implanted? Well, some of them, you could say, are homegrown. All of us, by conception, have this nature of the wicked one. Some grow up in Christian homes, remain in them right through their teenage years, perhaps into their young adulthood. Satan hasn't implanted them. They are essentially the offspring of Christian people. It's a very sobering thing when you have children to have to recognize that their fallen nature is something that you yourself actually brought into being. But when it comes to actually implanting, some of these people end up in congregations like this, undoubtedly, by the devils encouraging them to join. Or by opening the door for their employment by a Christian institution. Opening the door for them. Paving the way. Often it's by marriage. Christian people assuming that the person now to whom they're engaged is truly God's child. When I do premarital counseling in the first session, almost the entirety of that session is given to this particular issue. Are you confident that if you marry this man that he is truly a child of God? What evidences do you see in his life? If you marry her, are you sure that she truly is a Christian. Tell me about the evidences that you see. Could the two of you right now today express that insofar as you're able to discern, you have no doubtfulness about this, this is going to be truly a Christian marriage. But we know, we know the Word of God itself indicates that in the overall providence of God, You have Christian people and they are wed to unbelievers. And thankfully you have examples of this in Scripture and you have direction and you have great comfort given to those people and the hope is held out to them that someday their mate may truly come to Christ. But undoubtedly, implanting somehow, sometimes, 
is the work of the devil in a marriage. Or folks, sometimes it's deliberate deception, like the man who betrayed Tyndale, deliberately joined himself with that company of reformers, taking money to be a great deceiver. Look at Judas. Look at his motives for what he did. Now, what we're told, secondly, in this passage is that there is going to be a final and an infallible separation. There will be no mistakes made about this. But that separation is explained to us as something that will also be done supernaturally. It will be done, the Lord says, by the angels. There is a mixed condition and it will persist and it will be unresolvable Now, folks, truly, this is unresolvable on the human level. And it will persist until the very end of the age, and it will require the angels themselves to sort this out. And the really fearful thing, and I can say this tonight with truly great sorrow, after being here all these years, is that when it's all sorted out, there will be men and women who have been our husbands or wives. There will be those who have been our brothers and sisters in our families, sharing the same bedroom, sitting at the same table, using the same Christian textbooks. There will be those who sat together with us in these pews, who sang in our teen choir, who graduated in our homeschooling graduation or at the graduations of Christian schools in this community. There will be those who taught Sunday school classes here and sang solos in this very pulpit. And in the end of the age, they will be exposed. It is a horrible thing to think of your fail, frail spirit and your flesh as being seized in the unbreakable vice-like grip of an angel. These people were never genuine. They were infectious seeds or weeds in our families, in our churches, in our schools, on our mission fields. And just like we rake up leaves and make a pile, driving down the road this last week, I drove past a home where out along the front of the property, a man was burning pampa grass. I'm sure he had to set it alight with something, lighter fluid or gasoline. But in this case, there is nothing to have to ignite these people. 
And it will not be a necessity that, it's an awful thing, folks, that their burning keep the fire going. The fire is a whole lake. It is a sea of fire ignited by the righteous wrath of God. And if you tonight are a tear and you fail to let the Lord make known to you your true nature and you continue to flee the light in services like this, and surely this is not the first service in which you have felt a degree of exposure. If you continue to flee the light and retreat back into the darkness, there will be nothing but you for fire. And I ask you tonight, in the words of the Lord, in the book of Isaiah, whether you can dwell with everlasting burnings. If you are truly anxious about that horrific possibility and you genuinely want to know your true condition, then there is a way. There is a way by which tears are exposed right now. So that both they and others may know. There is a way by which tears are exposed. And that is apparent from what is said in verse 27. It's apparent from the fact that in our Lord's parable, he says that at a certain point in the growth cycle of the tares, his servants, his slaves, can actually detect the difference right now. Now, they're not infallible. And that is why when he asks about their going out to uproot these, to clean up the field, the Lord mentions, verse 29, the possibility that they could make a mistake. But what is apparent here is that his true servants can look at a portion of the field of the world where you have this mixed condition, they can look at it and they actually can, in many cases, detect the distinguishing difference. What is that difference? Tares are exposed by their contrast, by their contrast with the wheat, with true believers. The wheat, we're told, actually, verse 26, bears grain. He says it this way, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares are evident. It's by way of contrast with genuine believers. Now, folks, this is not, this is not a new teaching. 
The Lord has been warning about this right through his public ministry. When he finished the Sermon on the Mount, he made this statement, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. It can't do that. That's impossible. Neither, this is also impossible, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He's been saying the same thing all along. By their fruits, you will know them. Five chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded that he said on this occasion, make the tree good. He's addressing that, folks, to his listeners. That's addressed to us tonight. Make your tree good. Make your tree good and its fruit good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit. And he got so specific about this in this chapter preceding when, as you know, his mother and his brothers came and wanted to essentially get him away from all of these consuming crowds. And he was told that his mother and his brothers were standing outside and the Lord looked around at all these people and said, who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters? He who does the will of God. It's the same thing. The good fruit. Those who do the will of God. Now folks, it's right here. And I I would view this as one of the most important parts of this message tonight. It's right here that we need to give undivided attention to a distinction which our Lord drew between two things that are easily confused. It is true that good fruit consists in part in good works. The Scripture teaches this that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has ordained beforehand that we should perform them. Please listen again. It is true that good fruit consists in part in good works. But at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what the Lord did is distinguish certain people who could claim good works from those who truly were his and would enter into the kingdom. And he distinguished in this way so that no one of his listeners would understand that day, would misunderstand that day. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into this kingdom. It will be those who truly do the will of my Father. 
And then he says this, there will be many, and that is the word that really ought to alert us to the possibility that I've raised tonight. That this is not a rare thing, it's not unusual, that this is commonplace, where the wheat is, it's oversown by the enemy, so that in that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out demons? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And folks, what I'm taking away from that is this, that in the case of really deceiving counterfeits, works are really not a very good test. They're certainly not the acid test. Because, folks, the good works are one of the best disguises. Now, that's not the case just out in the world. If you have a Christian and he's just living out in the world. But if you're talking in a Christian church or Christian institution, the thing that really leaves these people unmasked is the fact that they actually do enter in to so many of the works of a Christian. And so what does that mean? Well, what it means is that by the grace of God, we have to go to some evidences that there really can't be any counterfeiting of. And I want to conclude tonight with two evidences in a true child of God which cannot be counterfeited by a tear planted by the devil. It's impossible. The first of these is something that had been being preached about the kingdom or in connection with the kingdom from the very beginning. If you wanted to be able to summarize the entirety of a saving response. You could summarize it this way, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the preaching of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist had been imprisoned, our Lord took up that same message And it is the same message that he gave to the apostles and has been passed on to us in the passages of the Great Commission. 24th chapter of Luke, the Lord said that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name among all nations. That's what we're doing. It's what all of the folks we support out on the field are doing. They are preaching repentance and then forgiveness of sins. Folks, genuine repentance cannot be counterfeited. Why not? Why not? Because we're informed in the Word of God that genuine repentance is something that God Himself gives. 
Paul writes it in 2 Timothy, and he says to Timothy when it comes to his dealing with people in the church who are difficult, he says the servant of the Lord must not go to war with them, must not strive with them. He must be gentle with them, and he must really attempt to teach them from the Word of God. Now listen to this. If God, perhaps, may give them repentance... that they may escape the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. It's a thing that God does. And the true evidences that it is God are given by the Apostle Paul. I want to ask you to turn, please, to this passage in the seventh chapter of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And in verses 10 and 11, particularly, you have the finest New Testament description of a repentance which is of God. It is according to God. And you'll see that. Paul says, the sorrow that is according to God produces a certain kind of repentance. What kind? Verse 11. It produces a repentance that is a total change of mind and spirit that is filled with earnestness about this matter. For the first time, people get very serious about dealing with sin. This godly sorrow produces vindication of yourselves. That is an effort really to Show yourself now to be genuine, to vindicate yourself. What indignation. That essentially is a reaction like God's reaction to sin. This sin in my life. This passage is talking about these people dealing with a sinning man in their assembly, but it applies as well to me individually. Really, I become indignant with myself and the life that I've been living and the deception that I've been part of, perhaps the lying with my lips that I've been doing when I've been claiming to be right with God and have a heart for God. And actually, my disobedience is as clear as the sunlight. My parents know it. My brothers and sisters know it. Everybody who knows me knows it. They know I don't honor my father and my mother. I am a liar. I'm given to outbursts of anger and wrath and strife, these works of the flesh. My life is characterized by deep sensuality. But with my lips, I just keep claiming, I'm right with God. I love God. Oh, I have a tremendous love for the Lord. My life actually is characterized by an open disobedience of God in very clear, fundamental matters. No, when a person genuinely repents, they're indignant about that. What fear? That's talking about fear of the Lord. What longing. Longing to have all of this behind me. Longing to be right. Zeal about this. Avenging of wrong. In everything you've demonstrated yourselves, Paul says. Now folks, this is a God-given thing. And you have to ask yourself tonight, remember I'm not asking you do you sin or 
are you sometimes overcome with the flesh? But I know that I can ask you, and that this is an acid test. Are you truly continuing in the practice, in some cases the open practice, of clear, unmistakable stubbornness in a matter of disobedience to God? You're stubborn about it. You won't give in on that point. But at the same time, you keep telling your parents when they express concern about this and what it may mean about your spiritual condition, you keep telling them and protesting, you know the Lord, you're a Christian. Really? Have you genuinely repented? of your known stubborn practice of sin. Folks, it's one thing to sin and to be quickly confessing it earnestly. It's one thing to struggle with your flesh and sometimes to be overcome by it to where you're crying out, what a wretched person. It is another thing to refuse to repent. And to be able to do that, God will genuinely have to give this to you. And that brings me, so that we don't have any question about the genuineness of it, it brings me to this second unmistakable evidence. And that is this, genuine love for the Savior. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Anathema is the word. Now listen, folks, to that. Listen to that evidence. Notice how universal it is. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, he is to be accursed. Now, I want to try to illustrate something for us. There were two apostles in that company that day who heard the Lord say these things, and eventually both of them failed the Lord at the moment of the greatest crisis in his earthly life. Their names were Judas and Peter. Both of them came to greatly regret what they had done. Both of them displayed their regret. Judas actually did so publicly. And he flung away the filthy money. And he did so with great emotion. And he went into eternity lost. After changing his mind, he went into eternity lost. 
It was no true repentance. It was just as Paul says in this passage, it was the sorrow of the world that works death. In his case, the casting aside of his own life. The other man, Peter, was questioned by the Lord. And I want to say, folks, that he was questioned in the way that this sermon is questioning us tonight. And what you discover from that questioning is that all the Lord wanted to know was one thing. Do you love me? And if you're genuine wheat tonight and you come to this point, you may feel very much like Peter because you're so aware of your remaining sinfulness. You may feel like, I I can hardly bear for the Lord to ask me that question. And finally, Peter just must resort to what he knows about Christ, that Christ knows everything. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, if you're a genuine Christian tonight, there is no question about that that you can say, despite your fallenness, your struggle with sin, that you know that the Lord is, is not going to attempt to refute you about this or argue this point, He knows that still in all of your sinfulness and wretchedness, you truly love Him. You love the Lord. Of your terror, I want to plead with you tonight not to toy with this any longer. Don't be satisfied with membership in this church. You need to be a member of Christ. You must not, please, be satisfied with the fact that you're like the wheat. You need to be wheat. And if not, someday, and that day is of God's choosing, not yours, The place, whether it's on the streets of this city, corner somewhere, like you see these crosses at intersections, that was the place. Whether it be a hospital bed, in your own home, Pastor and Mrs. Boyd's oldest son, jail, went into eternity, after a fall in his bathtub. The place is already chosen. The way out of this life has already been determined. It's completely out of your knowing or control. But if you die in this counterfeit condition, you will find that there will be an impossible, impassable gulf between you and your mother and your father 
your brothers and your sisters, your Christian friends and teachers, you will never, ever be able to escape it. You will be in an agony. And nothing can be done for you. I ask you tonight, again, is there a possibility that you are nothing but a spiritual tear in your Christian family, a Christian church, or a Christian institution? Oh, loving Lord, we ask tonight that by your grace, our hearts would be revealed and that each of us would know our true condition. And grant, we pray, genuine repentance to those who to this point have had hard hearts and have dismissed these things and with their lips have been speaking falsehood O Lord, grant them tonight a deep desire to truly repent and to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ who loved them, loved us, and gave himself for us. Help us now, we pray, to bear a loving testimony to him. And we'll thank you for that grace. We ask In his precious name, amen. The only additional word that I want to give tonight is to encourage all of you who have a love in your heart for the Lord to thank him that you do and not to be disturbed and made anxious tonight, especially those of you who really struggle again and again with the issue of your true salvation If you struggled with that and time and time again you've called on the Lord, your heart is toward Him, you believe these things, you would would give anything just to be completely embraced physically by Him and His love and you would embrace Him back. You know that you would not run or turn from Him in His blazing light because you love Him and want Him, you want to be sure He loves you. This message tonight ought to reassure you and thank the Lord for it. And those of you who really are not the Lord's own, you should refrain from taking this. I think you would do well just to sit quietly and in your heart to genuinely call upon the Lord with repentance and to continue to do that until you are confident that you have been earnest And that could be the first words of your heart, like, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was a genuine saving prayer. But after this length of time of deception, you need to be confident that finally you are being in blood earnest. And so I counsel to you would be to just sit quietly and pray and seek the Lord's face while he may be found and be confident that no one who has ever come to him genuinely has been cast out.
that He will receive you. And let's partake of this now to the glory of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you prepared a body for your Son and that his ear was open to you and that he lived a life of perfect obedience. We thank you that he was baptized with a baptism on the basis of repentance for sins despite having never sinned and never needing to have repented for his own sins but that he did so as our representative and for us. We thank you that he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness and he did not give way, but was faithful to you and to your word throughout that temptation and through the rest of his ministry. We, we praise you that he went to the cross a faithful and obedient son. And we thank you that being tempted in all things like we are, he is a sympathetic high priest. And we come to you today remembering his sacrifice on our behalf with that as our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we drink this cup, we're reminded of how thankful we are for the blood that was shed on our behalf by your Son. We thank you that through his blood we're justified. We thank you that through his blood we're redeemed. We thank you that through his blood we have forgiveness and cleansing from all our sin. We thank you for the fellowship that we can have through his blood as we confess our sins. And we thank you for Christ's amazing love that was demonstrated by him shedding his blood and giving his life. And for these blessings and so many more, we truly thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye do eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. All the Lord's people said, Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Lord Jesus, I
Let's conclude our service tonight with a hymn that is a prayer. It's 384 in our hymn book. And we'll sing, I think we'll sing all four stanzas tonight without instrumentation. Just the simplicity that you would have undoubtedly in the primitive church, the early church. These people gathered and there's a lifting up of their voices to the Lord. Wonderful words, aren't they? My Jesus, I love thee. When you can say that, then you can be sure that you can say the next line. I know thou art mine. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Let's stay seated and sing the first couple of stanzas. Jesus, I love thee, I the second stanza.
final stanza all together, and we'll go up just a little bit here. In Would you please come and dismiss us in prayer tonight? Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us the truth. And we know that it is your truth and only it that sets us free. And we thank you that you have made provision for sinners like us by giving up your very own beloved son. And we thank you that in him we have life. And we pray, O Lord, that you would not pass us by. We pray that you would do your Spirit's regenerating work in hearts, even tonight. We pray, O Lord, that this might be the day of salvation for some among us. And we thank you, Lord, for meeting with us throughout this day. We pray that this would be only the beginning of a week in which our hearts are drawn heavenward that our affections are set above, and that you really receive the glory from our lives. Oh, Lord, strengthen us, we pray, through what we've considered this day. And we'll give you thanks as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.